Well, good morning, everyone. And uh, there's a lot of excitement in the air, isn't there? Uh, Christmas is coming. We had the grandchildren around yesterday, and yeah, there's excitement, um, particularly for the younger generations. But we're never too old to get excited about Christmas, are we? We're never too old to get excited about Christmas, are we? No, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Um, I love the season, and as each year goes by, I love it even more because of the message that it contains and, and everything that Jesus means to us. And if you've got a Bible and you like to open it to Luke chapter 1, uh, so I was preparing for this Sunday, it's Advent, and uh, so we're, we're just the other side of the Christmas story, as it were, but running into it. Uh, the questions that were posed as I thought about this was, why should I believe in Christmas? You know, why should I believe in Jesus? And, you know, you may be in the room and you, you may have uh, been pondering those kind of thoughts. Why should I really believe in Jesus? After all, he was born 2,000 years ago. Why should I believe in someone then? Um, after all, wasn't he just another individual, though? He was an amazing individual in human history. Why should I give it that time of day? What difference would it, does it really make to me? in the 21st century. And I know that we're living in a, an age of perhaps self-examination where, where people, even in Christian circles, are, are examining their faith. And the reality of it is good to examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith, whether you have that true knowledge of Jesus and that real assurance that he can, brings, can bring. So what does G Christmas and Jesus have to do with my life today? And I want to say everything. Yeah? I want to say everything. Many today are, are lost and, and looking for a story, a, a transcendent one, one that kind of gathers them up and unifies and gives them hope. You don't have to look far to find that kind of desire out there. And the world that we're living in is, I'm sure you're aware of, becoming increasingly confusing and fragmented, a world of individualism and, and pressure groups, a world that agrees that there is a measure of right and wrong, but it depends on who you are as to what it is and what that looks like. So we've got what, what has become known as, as virtue signalling, endeavours to signal to, to the world at large that this is what I believe in and this is what I value, and so should you. But have you noticed there is no cohesiveness to it and little, if any, patience with anybody who thinks differently? And another thing that is staggering about everything that we see going on in our world today and those positioning of different people in different ways with different ideas is that it's a merciless and a graceless world. And it provides you with no opportunity for repentance, for forgiveness, for reconciliation. It has no basis other than its own assumed standards. And it's a world that has lost its bearings, a world that's adrift from its moorings. It's a world that has no North Star. It's a world without a guide. It's a world without God. And then, in the midst of it all, there are those who are concerned about the planet. Concerned about not only the planet, but the future. And I was reading of someone in one of the newspapers just recently who said, I don't want to bring any children into this world because I'm not even going to, sure there's going to be a world for them to live in. Does the world, do, world have a future? Do we, do, do we together? Does humanity have a future? And in it all, people are looking for meaning in some way, looking for 
direction, looking for purpose, a way to, to make sense of it all. They're looking for a transcendent story. And we all love a story. I don't know, how many people like books here? There's a lot of, lot of bookworms here. But, you know, I love walking into Waterstones and places like that and just being amazed at the amount of books uh, and the amount of new books that are continually coming out. We have this insatiable thirst for a story. And, and we have that kind of, and it's seen not only in books, it's seen in films, it's, it's seen in all sorts of directions. You go to, you know, you go to plays, and we, we love to be taken up for a while in a play. You trawl, you know, the internet trying to find a film for perhaps Friday night, and there are a whole range of them. In some way or other, we love a story, and we love to, to get absorbed in a story. I don't know whether you're one of those people when you, oh, this looks like a good film, and you, you watch the trailer a bit, and you think, I don't want to watch too much of that, because if I watch too much of that, it will spoil the film. Uh, and, 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 and then you start the film, and it's kind of slow. Have you ever watched those kind of films? And it's kind of slow going, and it kind of doesn't grab you. Somehow the, you don't identify with the individuals. You don't identify with the story. So oh, let's try it. Let's see if we can find another one. And have, it, have you done that? Yeah, <laughs> lots of us have done it. But we love a story. We love that story to, to captivate us, to, to absorb us. There's something in our psyche that wants to know and longs to be part of a story, a bigger story, uh, that we are not accidental beings in an accidental and meaningless world, a hopeless world, that there is something of eternity, because there is something of eternity written into our hearts. And that's why I think the Christmas story has it all. It is just such an amazing story, and it catches us up in so many different ways, but We'll focus on some bits as we go through it. But the, the Christmas story does just that. It, it tells us that we are not merely ordinary individuals. It, it gathers us up and, and tells us in the words of C.S. Lewis that there are no ordinary people, mere mortals. It is immortals that we joke with, work with, marry, slump, snub, and exploit. I was astounded by that phrase when we watched the film uh, about C.S. Lewis just recently. That really impacted me that actually there are no mere mortals, and yet we live in a world that it views its mortality in very particular ways. This is who I am, and when I die, that's it, I'm done. But no, the Bible doesn't tell us that. It says that there are no mere mortals. The people you live with at home, the people you go to work with, the people you mix with in Sainsbury's or Tesco's or wherever, they are no mere mortals. It tells us that we share a common history together, they're also part of a, a bigger, grander, greater story, and therefore the world is not meaningless or purposeful. And what's more, it tells us that there is the possibility of redemption, the possibility of forgiveness, of new life, of, of hope, the story in all about how Jesus came to save us because of who he is. So if you've got Luke chapter 1 open there, Let's turn and, and just read some of these verses. I love the book of Luke. I love the way he narrates the story. The other, the other gospels start, start elsewhere, but Luke just dives straight in. He, he addresses the, the person he's writing to, and then he just dives straight into the story. So many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us, and they use the eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples. And Having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, 
I also have decided to write a careful account for you, most honourable Theophilus, so that you can be certain of the truth of everything that you were taught. That's why this book was written. This is why we have this gospel, so that we can be certain of the truth, so that Theophilus could, so that we can also. Verse 5, when Herod was king of Judea, there was a Jewish priest named Zechariah. He was a member of the priestly order of Abijah, and his wife, Elizabeth, was also from the priestly line of Aaron. And Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in God's eyes, careful to obey all of the Lord's commandments and regulations. And they had no children because Elizabeth was unable to conceive, and they were both very old. And one day, Zechariah was serving God in the temple, and for his order was on duty that week. And as was the custom of the priests, he was chosen by lot to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. And while the incense was burned, a great crowd stood outside praying. And while Zechariah was in the sanctuary, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the incense altar. And Zechariah was shaken and he was overwhelmed with fear when he saw him. But the angel said, don't be afraid, Zechariah. God has heard your prayer. Your wife, Elizabeth, will give you a son and you are to name him John. You will have great joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great in the eyes of the Lord and he must never touch wine or other alcoholic drinks. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth. And he will turn many Israelites to the Lord their God. And he will be a man with the spirit and power of Elijah. And he will prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. And he will cause those who are rebellious to accept the wisdom of the godly. And Zechariah said to the angel, how can I be sure this will happen? I'm an old man now. My wife, she's well on in, along in years. The angel said, I am Gabriel. I stand in the very presence of God. It was he who sent me to bring you this good news. But now, since you didn't believe what I said, you'll be silent and unable to speak until the child is born. For my words will certainly be fulfilled at the proper time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah to come out of the sanctuary and wondering why he was taking so long. And when he finally did come out, he couldn't speak to them. And then they realized from his gestures and his silence that he must have seen a vision in the sanctuary. When Zechariah's week of service in the temple was over, he returned home. And soon afterwards, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and went into seclusion for five months. How kind the Lord is, she exclaimed. He has taken away my disgrace of having no children. And then as we read on, we read that an angel comes to Mary. And he speaks to her. And he says, greetings, favoured woman, the Lord is with you, verse 28. And Mary is confused and disturbed, and she tries to think what the angel could mean. And she, he says, don't be afraid, Mary. The angel told her, for you have found favour with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call him Jesus. You will name him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High God. The Lord God will be, give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever, and his kingdom will never end. They are some staggering words, and there's an awful lot going on there. in there. One of the things I like about Luke is he is a stickler for details, and, and rightly so. He is wanting to verify who Jesus is. 
He is wanting to assure Theophilus and all those who will read what he has written of who Jesus is and what he came to do. And his gospel has been described as the, the most carefully designed book in all of biblical literature. He was a meticulous historian. And even secular historians hold Luke in esteem for the way he approached his subject. He researched it and he wrote about it. It's a well thought out and a well reasoned account. It's a narrative with a purpose. And so this is not some fantasy written to delight us and transport us away somewhere. Neither is it some fictitious story with a, a feel-good factor or symbolic tale set in some mythical realm from which we can derive some kind of moral lesson. Will Luke will not allow us to do that with what he has written. He doesn't give us that option. Luke places his account, as we have just read, and I'm sure you have observed there, he has placed it within a historical, a geographical, a political, and a religious context. It's full of detail. He notes real people and real places. He notes their conversations and their actions. Why? Because he wants Theophilus to be sure of his faith. So the major theme of, of Luke's writing is salvation's history and how God, who is holy, can save us who are sinful and reconcile us to himself through this person called Jesus. And so we notice there that it took place in Roman-occupied Judea, when Judah, Judah, when Herod was king. Judah was in turmoil. There was religious and political factions. Uh, they wanted the Romans out, and some of the religious leaders were, were in cahoots with them. I mean, in many ways, when you look at society then, it looks a little bit like society today. Why? Because humanity is always the same wherever we travel in time, in, in space, and so on. And there's ordinary, everyday people going about their normal business. You look at Zachariah the priest and his wife Elizabeth, and you see Mary and Joseph the carpenter. And then there's the temple, the, the, the holy place that it was. The temple was a, a sacramental expression, the place of God's covenanted presence among his people. It was hallowed ground, and it not only connected them to God, but it also gave them an identity as to who they were as a people, past, present, and future. It embodied everything concerning past revelation, a revelation that involved promise fulfillment. So whenever they gathered, whenever they gathered in the temple, whenever they gathered to that place, they embodied that revelation. They said, we know God. We know he has spoken in the past. We know he is a God of the present. We also know that what he has said in the past about the future will come to pass. So I think that's quite exciting, really. And I think about that as a church, that whenever we meet, we can just sometimes think it's about me and Jesus, me and God in my own little world, but actually it's not. Every time we gather, we are witness to past revelation. Every time we gather, we are witness to the fact that God is present to us and speaking to us. Every time we gather, we are witness to the fact that God has a future for us. Hallelujah. And that's, that's staggering, isn't it? God's unfolding purpose in human history. And then there are the angels. And you know, perhaps some people will want to write at this point, come in at this point and say, Luke, why did you have to throw angels in there? You know, this kind of messes with the story. I can, I can get all the humans, and maybe I can get a bit of, of God, because we can't really see him and know him in that way. But 
angels. And I love it how the angels turn up on the scene. Somebody going about their daily life, going about their ordinary business, and suddenly these angels turn up. And it's a reminder that there is a, a world that is greater than the world that we see and apprehend with our senses. And one of the things I find is interesting is when I look on bookshelves, when I look at categories of films, is how many books and films contain some sense of the supernatural? That actually somehow or other within our psyche, we kind of believe that there is something more than this. That there is a dimension to life that is beyond us and more powerful and more spectacular than what we see and know. And then in it we find God speaking. We find God suddenly speaking. There has been something like 400 years of silence. Not that God is totally silent, because there were prophetic voices when you read Jewish history. But there was no major prophet or prophetic utterances. 400 years of seeming silence. And you know, that can, it can seem like that in our lives at times, can't it? That, you know, where is God? And yet he is there. And he has given us revelation. But perhaps we're waiting for a word. We're waiting for something to happen. And this is what was the case with the Jewish people. They were waiting for God. They were waiting for a, another word, as it were. And God speaks. And there's these two words that come forth here from the angels. One concerning John in verses 13 to 17. And one concerning Jesus in verses 28 to 37. John would sum up all the prophetic voices of the past. All that God had said and promised down through the years of Israel's history. All those prophetic voices would be summed up in John. And suddenly this man is privileged to, to bring all of that prophetic utterance and out and identify Jesus. What, what, what a thing to happen. How powerful. And so he carries that weight, he carries that burden, and we know John's story. How that he was always pointing people to Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away of the sin of the world. And so he had that responsibility of summing up Israel's prophetic history, of, point, of identifying and pointing men and women to Jesus, the Messiah, the promised one, the one that we have been looking for all of those years. And then we come to Jesus, and, and I, I love the name of Jesus. Very often, perhaps, we, we spend a lot of... We can be casual about giving names to our children. We can think about how we give names to our children. We can think about how they, other children might take those names and mess with them and play with them. When we come to the name of Jesus, it's a beautiful name. And we've been singing that this morning. And it simply means Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves. And so in, in naming this little baby, Jesus, again, there's a declaration that's being made. I mean, can you imagine it? That's, that's what Mary hears. And then can you imagine it when this little baby boy 
looking like every other baby that's ever been born. And then his name. His name is Jesus. Yahweh saves. And you look at this little baby and he's everything but a saviour in this moment. He's a vulnerable little child. And yet invested in this baby is the whole story of redemption. God manifest in the flesh. And every Christmas, whenever I think of it, it still staggers me. I can't remember now how long I've been a Christian because I'm getting too old. You know, but it's like all those years. I can remember the the wonder of the story as a young person, but that wonder is even greater as an older person. What God did for us in Jesus, Yahweh saves. Mankind's greatest need was that of a saviour. He would be the son of the Most High. He would be the son of God. And then did you notice that as we were reading there, and he will reign forever. He will reign forever. So again, you think of this context of this world in which we're living where where people are wondering about the future. Is there a future? Yes, there is a future because Jesus, who came in time and space and lived and died for us, rose again and lives today and one day will come in glory to reign forever and ever. Hallelujah. Because you listen to what's going on out there in the world, and it's like, oh my goodness. Again, as I said, some, some people are saying, why should I bring any children into this world? There is no future. There is a future. Because he created the heavens and the earth. He is the sustainer of the planet. Yes, we as those who are stewards should be responsible. We should care for the planet. There is a proper place of stewardship. But we do, don't need to fear, because he is the creator, the sustainer. He is the saviour. He is the judge. He is the coming king. So the future is in his hands. So to try and tie all of that together, and I've covered a lot of ground there this morning, but this story is our story. Yeah? This story is your story and my story. It is our story. That the God who created and is a God who, in his love, has covenanted to redeem. And so we have that most famous verse, don't we? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him shouldn't perish, but have everlasting life. That with him, there is forgiveness. With him, there is a new beginning. So contrary to this world. And the old distinctions are gone and there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. But in him we are family. So many people are looking to belong in the world in which we find ourselves. In Jesus we find that true sense of belonging. We find brothers and sisters that we never knew imaginable. And with him is a future. He will come again. What a prospect. It's not something we, we talk much about. During the 70s and 80s, it was there on our agenda all the time. Jesus is coming soon. Jesus is coming soon. Jesus is coming soon. Are you ready? And then 
certain things happen and it kind of drifted into the past. It's like we live as if he's not coming again. But he is. One day he will come again. Let's stand, shall we? Oh, Father God, this is a big story. It's a big, big story. And the world is looking for a story. And we praise you, God, that you have given us one in Jesus. We thank you for your great redeeming love. We thank you that in him we do find mercy, grace, forgiveness, cleansing, renewal, hope, a future. We praise you, Jesus, that you are King of kings and Lord of lords. We praise you that in you there is a future and we, we can have every reason to have every confidence in this day, therefore. So, Holy Spirit, just through this Christmas season, breathe afresh upon us and re reignite these truths in our hearts and lives so that, Lord, if there are any who are doubting, like Theophilus, they might come to stronger faith. They may be assured of their faith. And if there are those who don't know you, oh, Lord, just... Dispel the darkness. Unstop the ears. Let your light come in. Let your voice be heard. Oh, may there be at this time many, many people who come to know Jesus Christ as Saviour and Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.